Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Who's your now, guest? One, one thing, well, it's Fiona Wood today uh-huh. and you've got Tony Birch. Indeed. But we're going to start with Fiona. Go for it. And Fiona's going to tell us about Crowthorn Grammar. Tell us about a bit about that. Crowthorn Grammar is a very privileged private school that has been um, part of the setting of the, uh, my last two novels, Wildlife and now Cloudwish. So, and so in, in, sorry, Jan, I was just going to say in Wildlife it uh, features an outdoor education campus and that's the setting for the whole book. Uh, the year 10s go away and live semi-independently and do a huge outward bound program as well as their regular academic work. And Wildlife won the Children's Book Council Award last year for yes, older readers. Very well exciting. done. Still can't believe so, that. Cloud Wish, we're back on campus mm. as students in Year 11. Now, they've got a common room, but uh, one of the big things that happens at Crowthorn uh, Grammar is rowing. Yes. And Billy Gardner is the king. Why? He's, it's a very, look, I'm, I was interested in dealing with class a little bit in this book, and he is, um, Billy Gardner is a very privileged kid who's come from generations of people who can assume that they, the world is their oyster, they can have anything they want. Rowing is an incredibly elite um, sport, it's an expensive sport for a school to run, and it's just really there as... I suppose to to define an extreme that is, uh, you know, something that I'm criticising in the book, I guess. I'm really looking at that privilege gap and questioning it. So rowing kind of epitomises one of the most privileged sports that, um, you know, kids can encounter in school. So Billy Gardner, he's got... A beautiful house, you know, his family do the cocktail party for the rest of the parents. And they have Mel, the house manager. Mm. Yep, (laughs) that sort of thing actually does exist, yeah. A person who just (laughs) runs everything around the house while Mm. the two parents work. Well, in complete contrast to the social and economic conditions is Van Uko Farm. Where does she live? In fact, how about just giving us a read from page 14 of just um, where she does live? And I, I think our, our listeners may pick up the suburb and where. Okay. Um, along Albert Street, the shops were opening and footpaths being washed clean of late-night vomits and early-morning dog pee. It was Thursday so all the restaurants with toilets out the back would already have locked those doors. Centrelink payment day was also look for a handy place to hit up day. Is that that? Oh, yes. So Paul, um, so Van Ork lives in one of the big uh, high-rise commission places. Yeah, she's she's in one of the, um, it's it's a sort of a, you know, fictionalised account of um, an inner city area. It could be anywhere, but um, she's... In somewhere like, you know, Richmond, Richmond or in Abbotsford, yeah. somewhere like that, yep. She tries to be invisible at this school, but know that there's expectations on her because she's a, a scholarship winner. Yeah, that's right. Um, so she's sort of decided, she's a pretty self-reliant character, and she's decided that she's actually not going to bother too much trying to engage socially at school, that that's not her time. She's a really talented artist, and she's just decided... 
fly under the radar for now and my life will start when I leave this place. <laughs> I meet my people at art school. And yeah. so she's a pretty quiet, circumspect character when we first meet her. In fact, which is in Wildlife, the last book, where she was set up as a minor character. So we've got the first day at school. The teacher of creative writing has a box of objects, creative prompts. To, this is to get the kids to write about fantasy. What does Van Uko pull out? She pulls out a little glass vial uh, with the word wish written on a slip of paper inside the glass vial. And what does she wish for? Well, she's the, she wishes for a couple of things. The um, This was an opportunity to look at what she's sort of secretly musing about, mm. which is a boy, and also what she publicly writes about, which is that she wishes for a more equitable society. And she's critical of the current politics in Australia. So, um, But it's that boy, Billy Gardner, Billy Gardner. the king of rowing. That's right. And instantly her. he seems to uh, want to know her, starts following her, starts wanting to be uh, paired up in class assignments. And this school has uh, community projects that they have to do. So he wants to be part of the community project that she's working at. And what's that? Yeah, that's right. That's based on um, a fantastic volunteer program that I've been involved with for seven years called Friday Night School and it's a volunteer tutor program for students whose parents have English as a second language. So it's um, a program similar to that and Van Ock volunteers there. She was a student there for most of her school life and in this year she's one of the tutors and organisers in the program and um, Billy, Billy, wants Billy, to fo <laughs> Billy follows her there. And of course this is done in the block of um, high-rise where she lives. It's in a church hall right next door to the high-rise apartments, yeah. So uh, when um, Van Ock was studying there, or when she was the, the student, it was her tutor who taught her and got her to read a book. Yes, she's. they read a lot of books together during the time that she was a student in the program. And one of the books, Van Ock lives her life by the credo, what would Jane do? What would Jane do? And Jane Eyre is the Jane in question. And Jane Eyre is one of her favourite books. Um, Jane Eyre is a character with no ostensible power, but who actually has a sort of a moral will of iron. And at every point in the narrative, this apparently powerless, inconspicuous person prevails. It's a really terrific feminist text in my reading. I love Jane Eyre. <laughs> and of course, all the well, Vanock must be rather attractive because even the, the boys that she's known since grade or from prep are starting to do sort of sexist comments to mm. her and things like this. And she thinks, what, what would Jane? do but I just wish I was had enough guts to do it yeah, too. Yeah. She, she can't always do, she knows what Jane would do but she can't always do it but throughout the course of the narrative she sort of gets into um, a slightly better state of speaking yeah. up. And well of course you know sort of there's the other girls notice Billy's attention to Van Ook, and there's peer pressure applied to her by well, Holly the school bully and also, of course, at this age, there's also parental pressures too, mm. where um, Billy also feels the expectations of his parents. Um, Van Ock do, does too. What's the expectation for Van Ock from her parents? Van Ock's parents um, want security for her. They were boat people who came to Australia in uh, 1980. Um, they... Their dream would be that she will be a doctor and she's a very academically able mm. student. Um, they're not as interested in her art. They think that's sort of like a bit of a waste of time. Um, but I wanted to show that the pressure on her is not too different from the pressure that Billy's parents apply to him. 
And in fact, they both want this sort of career, professional career for their children. But it's the knowledge, the, the knowledge of their families too. I'm speaking with Fiona Wood about her book Cloud Wish, and we get to a bit where, uh, to a page where. Um, uh, Vanuk is explaining to herself what she knows about her, her mother and her father and their whole uh, coming out to Australia from Vietnam. And you get to a page and it's blank because there's nothing. Mm. She does not know a thing mm. and it's just trauma. Yeah, so she was, uh, they, they were here for 17 years before they had her and she's tried to sort of investigate, interrogate their past and at 16 that's becoming a more pressing thing for her but so far they have been very um, circumspect about sharing much information with her. So she's dealing with a, a mother with post-traumatic stress disorder. That you know every relapsing post-traumatic oh, stress just, disorder yeah. and lack of English. And now, how did you, Fiona Wood, get into the mind of a young Vietnamese girl? I think it's the job of a fiction writer to do that sort of thing. You know, you're required to get into the mind of someone of a different gender, a different cultural background, different sexuality, whatever. But in this case, I'd had this long um, experience of uh, working with people from the Vietnamese Australian community through Friday night school. And I created a very minor character in my first book, Six Impossible Things. And I said to my student, did you like seeing Uyen Nguyen on the page? And she said, she didn't get to do much. And so that was my challenge that I could perhaps create a protagonist. But I did it with huge uh, sort of respect, a lot of research, and I asked people from the community to read the work because I think it's, you know, like it's coming from a majority white position. You have to take that on with great, um, I guess, just respect. Mm. You know, just not, not assume you can claim that. That story. Vanok's got a best friend who lives next door, Jess. Yes. Oh, she's. She, I hope one day. I hope I'm going to read a bit more about her. <laughs> I'd like to write a bit more about Jess. Um, I think in your own background, Fiona Wood, you you do script writing, so the dialogue through all of these characters is very precise and very very good. <laughs> Thank you. I love writing dialogue. And but the other thing too, as a an as an adult reading young adult stuff, which is most enjoyable for a, a, an older generation person, I have learnt something. And you'll have to work. You'll have to read the book to know what flick the bean is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to tell your listeners? No, I don't think we will go there. <laughs> they might be able to guess. Um, lovely bits in this. I think one of the best gifts that I've read about was uh, Van Ock and uh, Billy going into the readings bookshop and what did they do what did she say to do they they were on a they're they're on this sort of one night that they thought might be their only date for a while because neither set of parents would really approve their relationship uh, and they they separate and buy each other a book and um I like the choice of books for both of them. I yeah. thought that was a very, very nice thing to do. Well, look, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a lot, as I said. <laughs> um, the book's called Cloud Wish by Fiona Wood, published by Pam McMillan. But uh, before I let you go, Fiona, I want to talk to you because you're the Stella Prize School Program Ambassador. Yes, I'm, I'm one of about 10 in Melbourne and the Stella, um, Stella Prize Schools Program is rolling out around the country. They've um, recently launched in New South Wales and next year I think, and Tony might know a bit about this too, next year I think Queensland and Western Australia. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And um, yeah, so I'm really proud to be one of the ambassadors and we go and speak in schools um, to students with a with a particular emphasis on looking at, you know, gen gendering in gendering, reading. Yeah. yeah, so we're looking at 
trying to encourage teachers to look at the gender balance in reading lists and one of the sort of, to me, horror statistics is that a year 12 reading list will have huge um, majority, like 70% male writers compared to 30% mm. female writers, which sends a terrible message to young students of both genders. And um, yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a great program. We're going out and talking to lots, lots of students in lots of schools. How are you involved with this, Tony? Oh, well, I was um, judge of the Stella for, for two years in a row. Um, so I was um, known as the Stella Fella. <laughs> I, was, I was the only male judge. So I was a sort of a pin-up boy, basically. That's my involvement. And um, I am an ambassador, <laughs> although um, I'm not as user-friendly as some of these wonderful writers. So um, I'm more about getting out there. When I taught creative writing, um, as Fiona's just saying, some terrible statistics, um, one of the ways you can address that um, as a teacher is to make sure you're teaching uh, not only gender balance, but in my case, I, I when I taught creative writing at Melbourne University, taught a lot of younger Australian female writers because in a way to match the demographic of my class to see younger Australian female students getting access to slightly older women, female writers who could become mentors, role models and, and you know, obviously writers to, to epitomise. There's actually a very nice um, reading list in the Stella Prize school program, which it, 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 non-fiction, fiction, the whole lot. Yeah, it's a great resource for teachers. Fantastic. Well, look, you've given kids a great book to read too. I tell Thank you, they'll, you uh, they'll think they'll all find something interesting in, in uh, Cloudwish. And it has that magical element coming through just at the end. Or is it just what we want, what we, our expectations? Mm. Can our expectations fill our wishes? Mm. I, I, I did construct it so it can be read either way. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I've been speaking with Fiona Wood about Cloudwish. And, uh, well... Tony's already been introduced, so, which is uh, good. But both novels are set in Melbourne, mm. interestingly enough. And cities and civilizations are often built around rivers too. So Tony Birch builds his latest novel, Ghost River, around a certain primal flowing force. And we are introduced to the lives and situations of characters that live on or close to its banks. So... Tony, although you've already spoken, welcome to 3CR. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, you never name this river, but where are we? Well, I don't name it because, one, is anyone who reads the book and is, has any local knowledge will know that the river is the Yarra River. But um, as well, one of the reasons of not naming sometimes is that it does allow readers from other parts of the Australia, other parts of the world, to, in a sense, take notions of that river home to them, to rivers in their own city. Um, I was talking to someone recently in Brisbane, and one of the attractions for me any time I go to Brisbane is that is also a great river that flows through the city there, and I imagine if I'd grown up in Brisbane, I'd be writing about that river. So I would hope that there's some familiarity around this waterway that would 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 resonate with people wherever they live. But it's more than just the Yarra River we know about. If I can read from uh, the novel, this is a story from the other time when this river, she did not end where she is today. There weren't no boats for travel back then and there weren't no bay at the end of the river. The land was full and the river was a giant. Then one time more water came and stayed. Years and years of rain. The land filled up and there was the bay that come drowning the old river. He stomped the ground again, but she's still there, under this one, the old ghost river. He poked the stick into the ground and drew a swirling snake. This is her, 
and when a body dies on the river, it goes on down, down to the Ghost River, waiting. So what purpose does this river serve? That's a good reading, by the way. Um, better than I could have done. Um, well, I'll tell you two things. In reality, that the Birang River, the, the um, indigenous river, um, used to end at what we know as the Port Phillip Head. So the, there was no Port Phillip Bay until about eight to 10,000 years ago. It was um, open land, and the river flowed on to uh, uh, the mouth of the river at what we now know as the Heads. Um, of course, that river had important spiritual significance for Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, um, local Aboriginal nations. And today, even though we have a bay which is you know quite a, a big waterway, it's actually quite shallow. It's, I think, about 17 metres at its deepest. The um, course of the old river is still there, literally, so that um, um, archaeological divers went down about 2005 um, to the original um, bed of the Yarra River or the Birong River, which is about 100 metres down, and that that river still exists in geological formation. But, of course, the other issue that is relevant to the book is that that river has the story of that river is really about it's a formation story for aboriginal people and what text the older guy the aboriginal guy in in the book is is telling these two young boys is that the story of this river the history of it and its presence is still there for us and it has really important significance in a spiritual sense for him and what happens to people on the river um yeah there's a great belief in text and his fellow um homeless men that if um your your soul is good in other words if there's value in you as a person that the river will take care of you even in death and if your soul is um not so good or if you're a a bad person the river will spit you out so this river flows underneath the story as well and carries the story along in many ways but also this uh, novel is set in a slightly different time when is it um and how did you come to be writing about it? Um, it's actually set around 1970. People have said late 60s. That's okay. Um, it's set around 1970. And the, again, some of the basis for the novel is that it's set at a time when we lived in a house in Collingwood, which was a sort of a dead-end corner of Collingwood behind the Collingwood football ground. And Alexandra Parade, which people who live in Melbourne will know, used to literally end um, at um, the river. You couldn't access the river, so there were no bike paths, there were no um, tracks, walking tracks in any formal sense, and there were a lot of abandoned and empty factories along that area of Trinary Crescent, um, the knitting mills, etc. So as a young teenager, about 14 years of age, we could access those derelict buildings and certainly we could access the river, but it was a very wild river and very sort of overgrown and, and in a sense a very neglected waterway at that time. So the river was really dirty, there was a lot of stuff dumped down there, but Obviously, when you're a teenager, that holds a great sense of magic. And because I was a fairly um, uh, wayward teenager, it also allowed us to really test ourselves so that we would test ourselves by increasingly over a couple of summers jumping from higher and higher bridges to see if we could do the ultimate, which was to jump from um, what we call the Skipping Girl Bridge at the end of Burnley and Victoria Street, which is about a 70-foot jump, which is pretty high. But this sort of lifestyle... Um, and this sort of wayward behaviour is not as possible. I mean, we've cleaned the river up. Well, thank God. Um, <laughs> but, pe- but thank God in one way, but not in another, because it means you can't... That that sense and spirit of adventure yeah. is gone. Yeah, I, I, I accept that. And, and as a teenager, I would have preferred 
no one else be able to access the river because I thought it belonged to me. But in a in a sense of as truly as an in, as an ecological and environmental um, issue, I actually am very pleased that the river's been cleaned up, and that's for everyone. I mean, Aboriginal people around around Melbourne and you know, the Greater Port Phillip area. Great campaigners for the protection of land and the cleaning up of waterways and landscapes, etc. I'm also glad, of course, that people do get access to the river now at a, at a greater level. But I think that teenagers of today, I think, always have ways of whether it be transgressing or finding those spaces that nobody else controls. So I'm sure that there are kids in Melbourne today around that same age who are finding places for themselves that old folk like us don't inhabit and they can get out of the way of CCTV cameras, adults, police, all that stuff. So I think teenagers are remarkably um, adventurous in being able to to lay claim to places that nobody else wants. But you've got a freeway coming through. In some ways, is that sort of a notion of destroying? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's a more important issue that you raise so that while I, I'm certainly pleased that the river is a much healthier waterway, um, I think that the issue that you raise there is that people often think about the Eastern Freeway, which was built, and people remember the protests about traffic coming through the inner city. Now, that was an important protest, but there are really important cultural sites that were destroyed for that freeway, so that whether it be so-called human-made sites like the very famous Deep Rock Swimming Basin, which was built in the early 20th century and people used to swim there, and we still swam there in the 1970s, important Indigenous archaeological sites that were lost. When that freeway was built, people don't know that the course of the Yarra was actually changed at that area, so there are some really dubious memorial plaques down around Dyke Falls about sites that are supposed to be commemorated. Well, those sites actually, the plaques, sorry, are on the wrong site because it's there's a little artificial stretch of the Yarra River there that people wouldn't be aware of. So in that sense, the destruction of places that are important to people, both in what we might call a sort of a post settlement phase and even in long time deep time of aboriginal time there's a lot of places that have been lost because of that freeway Mm. but we've also now got the characters that live along this river but before we get to them the the river almost reads like a character in itself wren sniffed his arm the water smelled like nothing he'd expected it was a rich scent the same that was given off by the back garden after he'd watered archie's bed of tomatoes for him As his skin dried, he noticed specks of dirt, fine as baby powder, covering his body. From that day on, the boys carried the river home with them. They went to bed of a night with the scent of the river on their bodies and through their hair, no matter how hard they tried to wash it out. And it was with them the next morning when they woke. So the river is almost like a living force. Yeah, and I mean, that passage that you read is quite interesting because um, I published a fair bit of poetry before I ever wrote any fiction. And one of the, um, as a writer, one of your frustrations, and I'm sure Fiona would know this, is sometimes you're trying to capture emotion, trying to capture mood, trying to capture feelings or something physically tactile in words. And I think ultimately you always fail. You never quite get it as, 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 as you can try as hard as you like. And the thing that I wanted to convey in that passage and have done previously is that the river, the Yarra River, even despite the fact that it was it was neglected in many ways, I did love the smell of the water. I did love the feel of the water. And it was a fact that when you went home of the night, because it's a very silty water and you have this tannin of eucalyptus leaves and bark built up over thousands of years, it's like a really rich you know, black tea, <laughs> um, you couldn't get rid of it. 
And that was both beautiful because going to bed and smelling the river in your bed in the morning was lovely. But the downside of that is my mother hated me going to the river because she'd heard all these horror stories of children drowning. And there's no way you could get away from that. You, yeah, you could scrub yourself with velvet soap day and night and your mum would come home from work and she'd just sniff the air and she'd say, you'd be in the river and you'd be in trouble. You needed Solvol to sort of scratch I, it off. I, I, well, I don't even know if the old Solvol would have worked. worked. I think you would have had to bleach yourself or something. But here we go. We've got now two characters, uh, Sonny Brewer and Wren. What's their relationship? What's their association with the river? Well, the next, well, firstly, their relationship is their next-door neighbours. Um, Ren's a much quieter boy and he's a bit of a dreamer, whereas Sonny is much more wayward and he's been in a lot of trouble. Um, their friendship actually starts on a dubious note simply because Sonny can protect Ren from a, from a bully at school. So we've got bullies at this school too, Fiona. So the state system and the private system, what they have in common no is, is bullies. Um, and... Um, but what really, of course, draws them to each other and, and binds them is the river. So that when Wren introduces Sonny to the river, he experiences it also as quite a magical place. And and that reflects my childhood that I lived in Fitzroy until I was the age of 10. But it might seem I'd never seen the Yarra River. Yeah, we didn't go anywhere except football grounds. And then when I moved to Richmond and a friend who became a friend at Richmond first showed me the river, for me, again, it was just this magical beginning of a, a relationship. So I wanted to capture that, that the river is what holds these two boys together. And there are characters that live down by the river. Yeah, of course, the rivermen, and these are a group of homeless men led by Tex, who we've already mentioned, and they're five very wayward men who tell remarkable stories, sometimes quite um, lucid stories, sometimes stories that don't seem to make any sense, particularly if they've been drinking. And again, these real these characters represent a real-life situation which has changed, that when I was a kid, you would see a lot of homeless men setting up camp along the river. You don't see it so much today, certainly around the Yarra, although I would say one of the things that interests me, I, I write my my bike to push bike to work at um, Victoria University in Footscray and I have noticed since I've been riding out there there are some very elaborate camps set up on a couple of under a couple of bridges um, so it's still going on oh yeah still going on and obviously and I've you know academically I've done a lot of work on homelessness when you consider there are the minimum minimum of 100,000 people sleep homeless in Australia every night it wouldn't be surprising that it goes on and they've got a relationship with this river which is a life and death sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, in a life sense that it gives them protection. They can be on the river. Their coppers don't haunt it. They, yeah, these old guys are. Yeah, they they they're subject to possibly you know violence from other younger people, younger men who are looking for trouble. So down on the river, they can have some sanctuary. But of course, when yeah, they've got a pretty um, unhealthy lifestyle themselves. The level of drinking they do, and the, if one of them dies or if one of them, in yeah, vanishes. Their relationship with the river is very spiritual and sacred in the sense that how they live and die is dependent on that relationship. And there is a scene there of a burial on the river, which is quite profound. I want to get on to another character, the Reverend. We're going to run out of time, but it, how realistic is this image of the Reverend? Well, the Reverend, I love writing. The physical description I wrote of the Reverend, I just loved it. It was, um, I was thinking of Raymond Massey in... Um, um, Arsenic and Old Lace, um, this evil sort of <laughs> character. It's based on something quite true, and that is that the Reverend is a disciple of a man called Father Jealous Divine, who is an African-American preacher who founded a church in the U.S. in the early decades of the 20th century. And they had followers in Australia 
because of the influence of American service personnel during the Second World War. And I found out about this because one of our neighbours was a devotee and um, in her house she had this poster of the Reverend Father Jealous Divine, as he called himself, and his bride who was went by the name of Mother Purity Divine, who was a, a white woman, and then she was um, replaced after she died two weeks later by her reincarnated self, who was another white woman but happened to be only 18 years of age. So he oh, was very fortunate to be able to... His wife was reincarnated as a much younger woman. And so just when you think, is this plausible? You've actually based this on... Real, oh yeah. I mean, is it plausible to be reincarnated? I don't think so. <laughs> but but this 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 religious sect, yes, they had a following in Australia, and and they're still around today. They in the US, they still have a following, and um, I hope they don't get to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the reverend actually comes into. Um, well, encounters the river, shall we say, and the listener's going to have to uh, read the book for themselves to find out which is the stronger spiritual force. Mm. But what does the river mean? I'll just end on this note. It means plenty. You find yourself down at the bottom of the river. For some, it's time to give in to her. But other times, young fellows like you two, you got to fight your way back. Show the river you've got courage and is ready to live. She needs to see that or she'll take you. That's the most important story of all. Oh. So, Tony Birch... Thank you very much. The book is Ghost River, University of Queensland Press. And I was speaking with Fiona Wood about Cloudwish, Macmillan, Australia. Thank you all and thanks for listening and listening next week. See you next week. Thank you. Authors.